We sometimes pray that God will give pastors the words to speak. Um, maybe this morning it's more that he'll give me the air so I can. But uh, it's really good to be with you this morning. I'm going to attempt to share with you from God's Word um, in the book of Nehemiah. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah or tap in your app, Nehemiah chapter 1, we're continuing the story of the return of the exiles. So if you've been following with us for like the last two years, we've gone from Genesis through the Old Testament and God choosing, a, redeeming a people and choosing a people blessing of people and bring them into a promised land. And we've looked at kings and judges. We looked at the failure of the nation of Israel and God's punishment and sending them into exile. Then they had a group go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple so they can worship. But the story's still not done. There's one major component that has to take place yet. And that has to do with the book of Nehemiah. Um, so we're actually going to be reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, and I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Version of the Bible. But before we do, uh, quick history lesson so we can put things into perspective here. I know you guys, some of you guys love this stuff. Some of you guys are like, just going to tune me out for like 30 seconds or a minute here. Um, 538 BC, Sheshbazar, what a great name. He brings back 50,000 of the Jews from Susa, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, back to Jerusalem. Um, so there was about 30,000 men named, and then there were the women and children, and then there were the slaves, about 50,000 people, 538 B.C. 515, the temple's rebuilt. Oh, look at that. It just like zipped on me. Get back there. 474, Haman says, we're going to wipe out all the Jews. 473, Esther and Mordecai uh, undo that plot, and the Jews are saved. Uh, that's the book of Esther. So we went from uh, Ezra to Esther. And then in uh, 458 BC, Ezra shows up on the scene and helps him restore worship in the temple. And then in 445 BC, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, and the events that take place there um, happen. So you can see it's a pretty close timeline of, of events. What hasn't happened yet is Jerusalem hasn't been fixed. It's been destroyed, but it hasn't been fixed. Everything else is take, has been taken care of. And it's that last part, the restoration of the city, that the book of Nehemiah focuses on. See, Jerusalem was not just the place where David served as king. It's not just the place where the nation became a kingdom in the first place. It was also the city where God chose to have his name dwell. And that's an important concept to hang on to through the book of Nehemiah. It's the city where God chose to have his name dwell. And until the city is restored, the people, though they are no longer exiles, are going to feel like exiles. They're not going to feel like the people of God, the collected nation of God, because they haven't been restored back to that city and that position where they were once when they were in the city where God's name dwelled. So with that history, and I tried to keep it as short as I could, with that history in mind, let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress of Susa. Now, that's a pretty abrupt intro. I mean, and there's a lot of details missing. The 20th year of what? The 20th year of, of what? What, what fort? Why, why is he in Susa? Um, is, is Nehemiah Jewish or is he Persian? We don't, I mean, we, we really don't know much about it. It's, it's just like, here you go. We're just going to jump right into the story. And it seems like we're just jumping in the middle of the story. But though you and I have Ezra and Nehemiah as two separate books, they weren't always perceived that way. They weren't always grouped that way. They used to be grouped as one book. And when you look at the abrupt ending of Ezra, where the foreign wives are just sent away, and that's the end of the book, and you're like, that's it? It's like, it, there's got to be more. And you come to the beginning of Nehemiah, and you're like, the 20th year of Susa? And you realize, okay, this is a continuation of Ezra. When you put the two together, and you take the end of Ezra and bring it up to the beginning of Nehemiah, the way it used to be, the intro makes a little more sense. We're actually picking up with the story of Ezra some years later. It's about 12 years later, actually. 
after Ezra showed up on the scene. About 12 years later, Nehemiah is in the fortress of Susa, and he is um, going to get some news. Uh, Ezra is still around, and Ezra is, pro- is going to actually make an appearance in the book of Nehemiah. Um, but the book of Nehemiah, it's a narrative. But there's something unique about the narrative of Nehemiah. Often when you read a narrative, it's a story, like Jonah. And you may catch a couple things here and there to grab from it, but the book of Nehemiah is unique in that as a narrative, it actually has so many lessons for us to learn. It's one of those narratives that's just chocked full of practical application. But I want to give a little bit of a caveat. It's important that as we look at those applications, we don't forget that the number one purpose of the book is to put God on display. God is always the hero. So even though we're going to look at Nehemiah and his life and we're going to apply things to our life, part of our time needs to be spent trying to figure out what can we learn about God and what does God want us to know about him and his character and his work through the book of Nehemiah as well. Um, when I was, I can say my first couple years as senior uh, elder of the church, I remember going through some leadership classes. And I cannot tell you how many leadership books there are from the book of Nehemiah. Um, just tons of them, just great leadership applications. If you're looking for some books on leadership, you can search for some leadership um, through the book of, of Nehemiah. You'll find some great stuff in here, just so that you, just so that you know. It's a great book for that. Um, but who is Nehemiah? What do we know about Nehemiah? <laughs> um, what, what do we know about his character and his leadership and the decisions that he made and the priorities that he had? So Nehemiah was a Jew. And he was one who remained in Susa. So we had 50,000 that went back to Jerusalem in the first place. Then we had another group that went back of about three to 5,000. And then we had Ezra go back with a group. Nehemiah is one of those guys who stayed in Susa, stayed in Persia, in the capital, one of the capital cities. He was a son of Hecaliah. We don't know much about Nehemiah. We don't know much about Hecaliah. We really don't. And I'm probably saying it wrong. Um, but that's the best I can do with that name. Anybody ever hear of a kid named Hecaliah? Probably won't either. So uh, we learned at the end of chapter one that his job was that he was the cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer. All right. So a cupbearer is a person who would take the wine before it was served to the king and drink it. If it was poisoned, the king would find out. And how would the king find out? You'd be dead. Okay? Our, our, the, I think the closest thing we have in today's modern society is the, uh, would be the men and women serving in the EOD, Explosive Ordnance Division, where they go into a hotel room before any important uh, political person goes in, president, vice president. They switch on and off all the light switches. They open all the dresser drawers. They jump on the bed. They check everything. If there's a bomb, they find it. Okay, it's the closest thing we have in modern-day society would be the EOD uh, in, in our military. Just the fact that you have a cupbearer would usually discourage people from poisoning the king. Because if the cupbearer dies, now they're going to try to find out who did it. You're probably not going to have gotten the king anyway because the cupbearer would be dead. So it really wouldn't be beneficial to poison the wine because there was a cupbearer, which means that if that's your job, when you're serving, you get the privilege of tasting the best wines that are served to the king before the king even gets to taste them. And the chances of you being poisoned are pretty slim. If you're looking for a really good gig, that's it, right? I'm going to hang out in the palace. I got all my foods provided for me. I'm probably getting some of the same food the king is too because I'm serving in the palace and I get the wine that the king is being served. It's a pretty good deal. So. Why Nehemiah stayed in Susa, I don't know, but I think the job perks alone would be a good reason, Um, I I think, anyway. Uh, It also shows a little bit about the character of Nehemiah. If the king is to to appoint you as the cupbearer, he has to know that he can trust you. He has to know that you are a person who is going to look out for his best interests and not try to work through 
some kind of scheme to have him killed off. So there's this level of trustworthiness or integrity inherent with that position that we can ascribe to Nehemiah. So one thing we can tell about Nehemiah, he's got a really great job. The second thing we can tell is that he's somebody that could be trusted. And I think that that's very, very significant. Um, Now, a little fun thing. He's serving in the court of the king, right? Esther was queen in 473, and Mordecai's second in command. We're only about 20-something years after that. It's very possible, and Artaxerxes is still the king. It's very possible that Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer at the same time that Mordecai is second in the command of the entire empire and that Esther is queen. I mean, just let your mind wrap around that, those three stories all coming together in the king's court, in the capital of Susa, in the Persian Empire. It's really kind of cool, like this whole inner circle thing going on. I mean, we don't know, but it's possible that Mordecai got Nehemiah his job. Mordecai was that significant of a person. We don't know, and that would be total guesswork, and it is. But it's fun to imagine those things, isn't it? Like, they're all there at the same time, kind of chilling. Um, so uh, the Fortress of Susa, I actually have a picture of the Fortress of Susa, um, or parts of it. There's some of the remains in, in one of the castles. This is actually uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and you can still visit this fortress today. It's considered one of the oldest sites in the region, um, but you can actually go and visit the Fortress of Susa. This is, a, again, we're talking about history, but it's real history. And this place really exists, and it's a protected World Heritage Site, and you can go check it out today. Iran. Um, it's in Iran. So you might have a hard time getting there, but you can. And if you can, you can go see it. Um, so Nehemiah is serving in the king's court in Susa, which is where we had the story of Esther take place, and which is where we have Ezra's story taking place, where he's sent, sent from the king and goes back. So it's a very familiar place to us. So when you pick up in chapter one and you're like in the 20th year, it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus. It's the same king that Esther was the queen of. It's the same king that issued the proclamation uh, and gave uh, all of the stuff that Haman owned to Mordecai. It's the same king. It's the same region. And Nehemiah is serving in the court of the king as the cupbearer. Um, So let's read on and see what happens in the story now that we got some of the intro stuff out of the way. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll start in verse 1 again and continue. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was in the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall have been broken down, and its gates have been burned. Now, verse 3 is really setting you up for what the rest of the book is about in regard to the events and the history of the nation Israel. The, The walls being broken down, the gates being burned, the fact that Jerusalem's not rebuilt. Um, Jerusalem was originally destroyed by a Babylonian king. Anybody remember his name? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came in and actually destroyed, he he and his armies destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 8 through 10. On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guards, a servant of of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and he burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. So that happened in the beginning of the second exile, I'll call it, uh, when you had the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, going into exile. That's when that took place. However, in Ezra chapters 3 and 4, we read that the people were rebuilding not just the temple, but the walls. And then the opposition mounted in the first year of Artaxerxes' reign, and the enemies of the Jews wrote a letter to the king, Ezra chapter 4, verse 12. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came from you have returned to us at Jerusalem. 
and they are rebuilding that rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, duty, or land tax, and the royal revenue will suffer. And since we have taken an oath of loyalty to the king, and it's not right for us to witness this dishonor, we have sent to inform the king that a search should be made in your predecessor's record books. In those record books, you will discover and verify that the city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces. There have been revolts in it since ancient times. That is why the city was destroyed. We advise the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will not have any possession west of the Euphrates. It's a pretty harsh accusation. So the Jews, when they came back with Esther, they were rebuilding the walls. They'd already reset the foundations. And they were building the walls back up. And then their opposition sent a letter to the king. And in Ezra 4.19, it says that the king says, I issued a decree and a search was conducted. It was discovered that the city had an uprising against kings ever since ancient times, and there have been rebellions and revolts in it. Powerful kings have also ruled over Jerusalem and exercised authority over the whole region of the Euphrates River, and tribute, duty, and land tax were paid to them. Therefore, issue an order for the men to stop so that the city will not be rebuilt until a further decree has been pronounced by me. Now, that's an important phrase. If you've been with us through Esther... And through Ezra, you understand that a decree of a Persian king cannot be revoked, right? It's a law of the Medes and the Persians, and it cannot be revoked. This particular command by Artaxerxes says they are to stop until I issue a different command. So he actually gave himself an out on this one. Maybe he learned. I don't know, but I'll call it the providence of God. It's pretty cool uh, that that one's in there. And so... In Ezra 4.23, as soon as the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read to Rahim, Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them. This concept of forcibly stop them, remember, they had started rebuilding the walls, which also would have included the gates, I'm sure. This idea of forcibly restopping them, many scholars believe that it's at this point that the gates were actually burned. And the walls would have been torn down again because they started to rebuild. So to forcibly stop them, many scholars believe they actually did more damage to the city. But realize that even if it wasn't this group that was doing the damage, any of the enemies of the Jews would want to do whatever they could to make sure that city never got rebuilt. And there really was no law in the day that was controlling whether they went through and burned stuff in that city. I mean, the, the uh, Babylonians had. So the situation was that multiple times this city has been attempted to been built up and it's been destroyed, it's been started and then taken down, and it still is in shambles. It's just, it's a mess. There's no walls, there's nothing going on. And so it said that in, in our passage, in our first three verses, that there was evil or great trouble, ra'a, there's great trouble, and there is disgrace. Trouble or evil because there was no protection for the people living in the city. That was, your, that was the only way to, to protect yourselves were your walls and your gates. You have no walls, no gates, you have no protection, which is why many of the people actually lived outside the city, <laughs> because it was safer outside the city than in the city. Um, the condition of the city was a mockery of the Jews living there, as well as to God, who chose to have his name dwell there. This is significant. Remember, most, most world religions in this time, the deity was connected to a region. The deity was connected to a land. And when God, when you read Deuteronomy, and you read the, the laws given to the nation of Israel, there's this phrase, you will do this and this in the place in which I make my name dwell. He's leading them up to when he's going to actually have a residence in the promised land in Jerusalem. And then when Solomon builds the temple, God's glory inhabits the temple, and God calls that temple and the city the place in which his name dwells. That place is destroyed. It's been just wiped out and burned down. And that's a reflection of the God whose name was there. 
deities were connected to a location. Let me show you that even the, even the pagans saw this. Ezra chapter 6 that we covered. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who dares to harm or interfere with this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out diligently. Even the pagan gods understood that a deity was there and that the God of Israel dwelled in the city of Jerusalem and chose to have his name dwell there. The God of the heavens chose a place on earth to be connected to, and that place is in ruin. Though the city was in ruin, it really was the reputation of God that was at stake. His people had disobeyed him. That's why they went into exile. His city has been destroyed, and his house was destroyed. Now, the people are obeying him. The remnant has returned. The temple has been rebuilt. Ezra has been teaching them God's law. They've been offering worship um, and through sacrifices, but the city is still in ruins. To lift the disgrace of the Jews and of their God, the dwelling place of God, both the temple and the city, must be rebuilt. This is the last phase of the restoration of the Jews after exile. It's not enough just to have the temple. The city must also be rebuilt. So here's Nehemiah's response, verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, Lord, the God of heavens, of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great, empower, uh, your great power and strong hand. So please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man at the time I was the king's cupbearer. Um, side note, give him, grant compassion in the presence of this man. This man would be the king, okay? So if, if you're, that phrase can seem a little bit odd and your translation may have actually put the word of the king in there, um, it, it brought the, if it did that, it brought the translation in not the actual words that are there. So it's, it's in the presence of this man, meaning the king. So Nehemiah's response. How does Nehemiah respond when he hears these words? That though the Jews are in Jerusalem, he's assuming everything is going well, and he hears, now it's horrible because the city is still destroyed. He sat down, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. You know, it's again, fasting and prayer together. Almost everywhere in Scripture, fasting and prayer together, except for what book? The book of Esther where they fasted, but we never read it, they prayed. Really interesting, because again, remember, Esther, the book of Esther has no mention of God in it whatsoever. Um, but Nehemiah's case, he fasted and he prayed. These are all great responses to bad news. Um, any of you ever get bad news? <laughs> right? I mean, today? <laughs> I mean, we all get bad news. We all have bad things happen. Part of life and the fallenness of this world is that there is evil in the world, there's death in the world, and we will all face bad things, bad news. I think the modern church, much of the modern church has wrongfully taught for years that if we're walking in the spirit and have real faith, we won't be upset or sad or despondent or discouraged, and that's just baloney. I don't find that in the Bible. Being discouraged or upset or sad is not necessarily an indication of a lack of faith. It is always, however, a great place to have our faith enlarged. 
And we do that by turning to God and seeking him more. It is often in the times of our greatest distress and our biggest challenges that we're the most open to learning from God. I think that's why James, in his book in the New Testament that just slaps you in the face, says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And as it continues, it continues to grow in your faith to the point where you are complete and lacking nothing in your faith. I think James has got it right on. It's not wrong to be sad. It's not wrong to be depressed. It's not wrong to be discouraged. It's not wrong to be upset. The question is, what do you do in those situations, and who do you turn to in those situations? Nehemiah turned to prayer that we read in chapter 1. Actually, this is the first of 12 references of prayers in the book of Nehemiah. In Ezra, we only had one prayer. It was a pretty good one. I like it. In Nehemiah, we have a reference to 12 prayers, and they're a lot different. I mean, each some of them are just like totally different from, from the prayer that we have in chapter 1. Um, but what's your response when you're discouraged, when you get bad news? What's your response when you're going through a difficult time? Do you start, you know, by, by posting on social media or by praying to God? Um, do you turn to God? And, and if you do, do you come to him with complaints or with humility, seeking what he might want? Now, I'm going to assume that each of us here, as a general rule, I'm just going to assume that all of us here, when we get bad news, the first place we turn is to God. If that's not your response, talk to God about that. I'm just going to assume that we all do and that we're like, yes, that's what we do. That's what we do. Um, that's great. So let me ask you this. When you do turn to God and you do start praying to God, who do you think you're praying to? Who do you understand God to be? Nehemiah had an incredible view of God that comes out in the beginning of his prayer. That's right. See, I'm finding out. There you go. Nehemiah's view of God. Nehemiah saw God as the Elohim of the heavens, the God of gods, the God, the God of the heavens. Saw him as a great and awe-inspiring God, and also as a promise-keeping God. God is on his throne above everything around us, above every situation we're in. He is mighty and he is to be feared, awe-inspiring, is to have an awe or fear or reverence for God. We can trust him because he is a God who always keeps his promises, a God who never changes and goes back on his word. Though we said that there's a phrase that a, a law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked, the word of God does not change ever. The character of God does not change ever. The nature of God does not change ever. He's the God that's above everything that we face. And when we're struggling with circumstances and challenges, we focus on this. That's where we are. That's our world. That struggle, that challenge that we're in, that moment. God is beyond that in time and in understanding, in planning and in wisdom. And when we go to God first, we're going to the God who sees what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. The God who has planned what is taking place and what will take place. The God who is in control. The God who all along has just wanted us to fear him and to trust him from the beginning in Genesis who wants us to turn to him. Do you, do you realize that the same God that we talk to personally, that we call our father, is the God who controls the entire universe? You and I have the privilege and the joy in our bad times to go to this God and call him our father and say, Dad, I'm struggling. I'm I have a situation that is out of my control, and I need your help. The same God that put all the stars in the sky that you can't even count. And I love going outside in these spring nights when it's clear and just seeing billions of stars up there in the sky. The same God who spoke those into existence is not surprised by our challenges. And he's not taken back by any circumstance. He's in control. 
and he can speak into our lives. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10 says, Do not fear. This is his word to the Israelites. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. And I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Maybe if you've struggled trusting God with your bad stuff, with the discouragements and the struggles and the challenges of life, maybe you need to take Isaiah 41.10 and put that on your fridge and put that on your, your mirror in your bathroom and on the dashboard of your car. And just keep reminding yourself that God, the God of the heavens, is with you, is there for you, is there to help you. I think it's easy to pray, but I think sometimes we forget who we're praying to. As the children of God, we have the privilege of sharing our joys and our burdens with the God who made us, the God who gives us breath each day, something I'm not taking for granted um, these past few weeks. The God who sustains the world who has been and has been passionately pursuing mankind since the very beginning when we first sinned and continues even today to do that. He knows you, he cares about you, and he wants you to trust him. Nehemiah prayed to a God that he believed was in control of kingdoms, including the Persian Empire, in control of kings, in control of the situation in Jerusalem. He understood that God is a God who runs things, and he could turn to God and trust him with that. So now we've considered what Nehemiah thought of God. Let's look a little bit more at his prayer. His prayer, first of all, he acknowledged God's person and his power and his position. Um, so I think that's important. And, and we're going to look at a couple of these elements of his prayer because I think they're things that we can also incorporate into our prayer time when we do turn to God. He, he mentioned that God is the God of the heavens. He, he recognized God's position and his person and his power. Um, we also recognize that Nehemiah was persistent. He said, I'm praying for these people day and night. I don't think God gets tired of us bringing up the same stuff. I don't think he gets tired of us coming to him. It's not, you know, okay, so, you know, have got the dad, dad, dad. I mean, sometimes as parents, we can get annoyed if our kids keep coming to us, right? I remember my mom saying to me, my name is not mom today. And as a kid, I didn't know what to call her. And that was the point because I had been calling her too much and she just needed a break. I don't think our father in heaven feels that way. He wants us to come to him over and over and over again. So being persistent day and night. You also notice that Nehemiah confessed his sins. And just like Ezra, Nehemiah took on himself the sins of the entire people of Israel. I and my father's house have sinned. As a people, we have not kept your commands. Even if he was in right standing with God at that time, his association with the people of God found him guilty. He assumed the sins of his nation as his own, not blaming others, but taking the blame on himself. And then he also asked for forgiveness for his own sins, as well as his nation. I think that confession, we've already talked about confession recently, is such an important part of our prayer time. He quoted the Torah. He quoted their scriptures of their day. Uh, verses 8 and 9 are from Deuteronomy directly. Let me read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. When you have children and grandchildren have been in the land a long time, and you act corruptly, and you make an idol in the form of anything, and you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, angering him, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that you will quickly perish from the land you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but you will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. Does that sound familiar? It's right in there as part of the prayer. And then there's more in Deuteronomy, too, about God being one to call them back um, from exile, from being scattered back to their people. He's quoting other scriptures. And I think quoting scripture in our prayer is a cool thing. I got to admit that I struggle with that more than other things in prayer. I've had people tell me before, you know, that they like to pray scripture, and they'll have a journal or they'll have a a passage that they're reading, and then they'll read that as a prayer. I struggle with that um, because sometimes I feel like I connect with certain parts of the, of the Scripture, and sometimes I don't. Um, 
but it's still a great thing to do. Um, he petitioned God on behalf of others, which I think is really cool. He said, God, these are, these are your people. I'm praying for the Israelites that are in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm praying for your people. Matter of fact, I really like the way that Nehemiah actually uses the words of Moses as like a hyperlink to go back. Um, and it, it, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 10. They are your servants and your people, and you redeem them by your great and powerful, or uh, your great power and your strong hand. This is an this is an echo of Moses and the Exodus. Um, it, it really is. And when God told Moses he was going to destroy Israel because of their wickedness, their rebellion, Moses actually prayed to God very similarly. Deuteronomy chapter nine. I prayed to the Lord, Lord God, do not annihilate your people, your inheritance, whom you redeemed through your greatness and brought out of Egypt with a strong hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Disregard this people's stubbornness and their wicked sin. Otherwise, those in the land you brought us from will say, because the Lord wasn't able to bring them into the land he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out and killed them in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and outstretched arms. These words that Nehemiah is praying is that hyperlink back to the God of Moses and the and the redeeming power of God back then. And he's saying, God, do the same today. They're still your people. And though Nehemiah is saying, you've redeemed them with the power of your hand, and it's linking back to the Exodus, not too many years before this, they were about to be annihilated. And God redeemed them through the power of his great hand, through the work of Esther and Mordecai. So, like many things in the scriptures, it has a link back to a historical event, but it also has application to a more recent event. And that's just typical of the way that the Jews would write, especially in their history. Um, <coughs> the next thing I notice is that Nehemiah petitions God on his own behalf. Do you know it's okay to pray for yourself? <laughs> Did you know that's Okay. I've actually had people ask me in the past, would you pray for me? I'm like, yeah, I'll pray for you. You praying for you? No, I don't pray for myself. I only pray for others. Okay. Why? Um, I don't know why. Um, when you think about it, to pray for others and not for yourself is really kind of arrogant. It's kind of like saying, well, they need it and I don't. And it's really not the way that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew, is it? Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus gave us a model prayer, it was about God teaching us to avoid certain things and providing for us certain things. It was very me-centered. Um, but there's something more significant about this. Nehemiah didn't pray, Lord God, you know Ezra's down there. Give Ezra the strength he needs to rebuild the walls. He didn't say, Lord, raise up somebody who can go down and do the work that needs to be done to rebuild the place where your name dwells. He didn't say, God, show those leaders down there that they need to get off their bottoms and start doing the work that you want them to do. Part of Nehemiah's prayer is that God would allow him to be part of the solution. That's important. That is so important. I'm going to give you a little fact check here. Many times... The reason God shows you or me a problem is because he wants us to be a part of the solution. And I, it's funny because people will come to me sometimes and go, you know, the church needs to do this. Well, that's great that God showed you that. How are you going to accomplish it? Well, I'm not going to. You're going to. Well, maybe I need to. Maybe it is something I need to do. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's something that God might want you to do. And that could be why he showed it to you in the first place. I think that there's at least two reasons why God brings problems and situations into our lives, um, especially when they have to do with other people. Sometimes it's to teach us something about our relationship with him. And sometimes it's so that we can be a part of the solution that God wants to present to that problem. I mean, what if when we got bad news or when we saw that there was a problem in the church, what if we started by asking God, to show us how we could be a part of the solution. How powerful would that be? So praising God, confession, scripture, 
petitions for others, prayer for our own needs, asking God to use us as part of the solution. These are all great things for us to include in our prayer time. Um, And I also want to talk about Nehemiah's attitude in prayer here. Nehemiah doesn't demand anything of God. Did you notice that? He pleads with God. (laughs) Uh, We should approach the awe-inspiring God of the heavens with humility, not like spoiled brat children demanding our way. Can I just throw that out there? Because I see a lot of people abusing the God of the heavens by demanding he do certain things. And I don't see that in the scriptures. I see a humility and a willingness to submit to God's leadership and a pouring out of one's heart to God. But what God chooses to do is for God to do, not for us to dictate. The importance is on praying in this passage. And, And I don't want us to take Nehemiah's prayer and turn it into a model prayer and say, here's eight things you need to do every time you pray. Or unless you pray like this, God won't hear you. Um, I don't want us to take this, this prayer of Nehemiah and say, this is what has to happen. Because in the next chapter, he's going to do one of those, uh, what do we call it, like a, 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 a bullet prayer. It's just going to be like, so I prayed, God help me. And then he spoke. And it's like one of those really short ones. You're like, oh, well, I can do that. And you know, maybe you're more comfortable doing that. We'll look at some of the other prayers. Maybe you like those better. But there's also going to be prayers you're going to read about that you're probably going to struggle with that Nehemiah is going to pray for the nation Israel. The importance is not that we model the prayer. The importance is talking to God about our problems and our, and our distresses. The pattern we're going to see that is worth modeling and imitating is a long obedience to God and a, and a complete dependence upon God. And that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah. And that's what's modeling. No matter what the circumstances, the place Nehemiah turns to is God. The person Nehemiah turns to is God. And the work that Nehemiah does is what will bring glory to the name of God. Well, that brings up an interesting thing. Twice in this prayer, we have the name of God mentioned. All right? We have the, so let's look at one of them here. Nehemiah 1.9. If you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your, you were, uh, your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. In verse 11, we also read, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to those, um, to that of your servants who delight to revere or to fear your name. Nehemiah's heart is to fear God and to fear, revere God's name. That's kind of a phrase we don't use a lot, to revere somebody's name. Or When you think about making your name dwell someplace, you're like, is that like putting a sign on the front of your house? Like, what does it really mean for the name of God to dwell someplace? And the word name also means reputation. Reputation. So when Nehemiah is burdened, he's burdened to bring honor back to the reputation of God in the eyes of the world around him. To restore the people to safety in the city where God's name dwells is to bring back honor to the God who dwells there also. The goal was to lift up the reputation of Yahweh. And Ezra had the same goal. Um, He really did. Uh, David covered, I think David covered this one here. In Ezra chapter 8, when Ezra was coming back, or actually wasn't coming back, when Ezra was leaving Susa to go to Jerusalem, and he had a group of people meet with them. They fasted and they prayed. And they humbled themselves before God. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. I'll just read it. I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for safe journey for us, our dependents, and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from our enemies during the journey since we had told him, The hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayers. Ezra put his whole life on the line saying, I just told the king of the Persians, the most powerful man on earth, that God will take care of us. I don't want to ask him for an army because it'll make our God look weak. So we're going to trust God. 
We're going to seek God. We're going to humbly come before God and just pray that God hears our prayers. And then we're going to go. And the rest is in God's hands. Why? Because the name of God was important to Ezra. The reputation of God was important to Ezra. You notice again that there's a humility in Ezra's prayer. Ezra wanted God to be their protection. Ezra was looking at God to be their king, which is what God wanted for Israel from the very beginning, isn't it? Do you remember the beginning in Exodus when we we went down that road and they're like, God's like, I'll lead you, I'll protect you, I'll guide you, I'll feed you, I'll heal you, just trust me. (laughs) And then they said, no, we want a king like all the other nations. No, we want a king. We'd rather pay taxes. (laughs) We'd rather be servants. We think it's better because that's what everybody else is doing. And God's like, all right, you asked for it. And things went downhill from there. All God has wanted was for Israel to trust him. And by living a life of humble faith in God, depending upon God and accepting what he brings into our lives, we protect and honor and revere the name of God. And that is something you and I can do each and every day as well. Friends, the way we live in our circumstances on this earth, at this time, in this place, the way that we live around our coworkers and around our family and around our neighbors, when it comes to dealing with circumstances and trusting God and putting things in his hands, not that we won't be depressed, not that we won't be sad, not that we won't be discouraged, But in turning to God and looking to him above all else and trusting in him, the way that we choose to live that life will either lift up the name of God and protect his name, his reputation, or it will become a disgrace to the name of God. And often the only difference between choosing one way or the other for me is whether I'm willing to be humble enough to go to God or whether I'm going to try to fix it myself. Which is why I love the humility of both Ezra and Nehemiah. Are we protecting the reputation of God? The rest of the book is going to be about protecting the name of God and living in a way that makes God look awe-inspiring and righteous because he is. The fact that we choose to live one way or another doesn't change who God is and that he is amazing. But when the world around looks to see, who is this God you serve? You call yourself a Christian. Why do you do that? What's that all about? The way that we live will tell them what we believe about God. And the way that we live has a chance to protect the name of God and to put him on display. Some of the lessons we're going to learn together from the book of Nehemiah will help us live better lives of putting God on display. But it has to start with the question of, who is the God that I serve? Who is the God that I pray to? And what do I truly believe about him? Because what I believe will determine how I live. What I believe will determine who I turn to when I have trouble. Do I truly believe that God wants to hear from me when I'm struggling? Do I truly believe that God is bigger than my circumstances, than my enemies? Do I truly believe that God's plans are the best, that Romans 8.28 is a real verse that applies to my life today? Do I believe that today is the day that the Lord has made and I can rejoice and be glad in it even if I don't like my circumstances? What I believe about God will determine how I live for God. And the way that I live for God has the opportunity to protect his name and to put him on display. And it's my prayer that as we go through Nehemiah, that you will learn that you can trust God more, more than you have today. There's always opportunity to trust God more than we already have, that he can be trusted, that he always comes through in his way, in his time, But it starts with us being willing to say, God, there's a problem, and I'm going to trust you with it. Let's pray. Father, we're 
so thankful and grateful that as your children, we have the privilege of coming boldly before you because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But not so that we can make demands, but so that we can come before you to learn, so that we can learn of your heart, of your compassion, that we can come to you and experience your grace and your mercy. Father, I know that every one of us in this room has gone through tough times. I'm pretty confident that there's a fair percentage of us that, are, that have been challenged even recently and maybe even today with our circumstances. Father, show us more of who you are. Teach us to trust you and to put you first. Help us to have the humility to come to you with our challenges. Father, convict us if in our pride we're trying to settle things on our own and deal with the circumstances in our own strength. I thank you that you are the God of the universe, that you are the God in heaven who cares for his people on earth, that you're above our circumstances, that you know the future from the present and from the past that nothing is impossible for you. Father, remind us of your greatness and help us to trust you so that we can show your greatness to the world around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I heard that. So, Lord willing, David's going to take us through chapters two through six or something, or just maybe just chapter two next week. And, uh, before Mother's Day kicks in. So thank you for being here. Please read the book of Nehemiah. It's a great book, and it'll make more sense if you read it from beginning to end before we get into chapter two next week. So 